two, three, and uh, we're live. How's yeah. it going, Dr. Ingalls? It's going well. It's going well. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Um, so let's just right, jump right into it. So can you just give me a brief um, just background, uh, who you are, what sure. do you do Sure. right now? Yeah, so I'm an Associate Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the American University of Dubai. This is my uh, third year here. Before that, I was at the University of Puget Sound. I was Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies. All right. And yeah, that's my sort of title. Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit on what uh, got you into the Islamic study field and, and what drew you towards it and where, where was this like interest and passion for it? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I would probably start the story in college. Uh, I went, I was international relations and I was doing Arabic as my sort of foreign language that we had to do. But why, why Arabic? Uh, I had a friend in high school who was Muslim and we were talking about Islam and he was teaching me, you know, some the basic teachings of Islam. And uh, that's how I got kind of into Arabic. I don't, you know, this, we're t I'm, I'm old. Yeah. So I'm trying to like recollect. Well, you don't look old. Well, thank you. Cheers, but I'm, I'm about to turn 40. Oh, no way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, guys can't say this, but he doesn't look a day over 25. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. appreciate that. But I actually am old. Um, so uh, no. So I had a friend in high school and I don't remember what was going through my mind in college when I decided to do Arabic. And, it was just more of like exploration, trying to see what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you um, have any preconceived notions of Arabic or the Arab nation or is it more just like okay it's I mean first... I, I was 18 yeah. so I was pretty ignorant okay uh, presumably again it's it's hard to kind of put myself what year back. is this 90 was 90 90 yeah it was 90 uh, I started college in 96 so uh, what that was after the Gulf War yes the okay the, the, yeah the Gulf okay War. fine I'm just first trying to get, I'm just trying to connect for um, listeners the first Gulf War. yeah the first Gulf War yeah <laughs> because, not the second we have to remember um, there's two now like you keep forgetting, you know, right? People didn't learn their lessons, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm just trying to see how the the cultural or how the, the community perceived the Arab nation at the time. I'm sure because of news yeah. and the way Saddam Hussein was portrayed or stuff, I'm sure there wasn't a good atmosphere yeah. of... It didn't have, I mean, it didn't have... Uh, the the connotations of terrorism like it does now. Yeah. That took until the 21st century. But maybe like dictatorship? Yeah. Oh, God, man, I'm, the whole world was different back then. Yeah, well, I'm I, sure. Remember that? Like, I was, I was like seven, eight. You were seven, eight? I was a right. kid. No, I, I try and describe people how getting on an airplane was back then and people like, no, that can't be true. <laughs> it was, I remember getting on airplanes and people were like smoking. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah. for me, is still ingrained in my mind. That yeah. someone next to me, there was an ashtray and they yeah. just light up. That, for me, was a trip. Yeah. I faintly remember that, too. Yeah. Uh, there was just a metal detector. That's it. They yeah. didn't even look. I don't. They might have checked your passport for the foreign country to know if you have a visa, but that's pretty much it. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think you had to show ID. I mean, maybe no, you did. Airport security was a different... It was a different world before 2001. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, no, you know, I was 18, so I don't I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Like, so, it was literally just uh, having a, uh, an Arab friend. So, no, he Arab... was... He was uh, well, so this was, that would have been a few years earlier. He yeah. was Kenyan, Canadian, ethnically Indian... Okay. From Kenya. Okay. Moved to Canada when he was pretty young, to Vancouver. Yeah. By the way, just sorry, off topic. There is a big Indian community in Africa. Yes. Because I heard that they were taken there as slaves. The Indians were taken to Africa it's during the slavery time. Indentured servants? Yeah. Well, that that's big in um, the Pacific and the Pacific Ocean Islands and in South America. Yeah. That's uh, But the Indian communities I've been connected with from... 
East Africa went more <clears throat> as a trading network. Okay. Merchant network in the 19th and more into the 20th century. Okay. Because I know for a fact you have like areas like Ghana, Ivory Coast, mm -hmm. uh, Nigeria. There's mm -hmm. a big Indian community. There is, yeah. And Idi Amin got, kicked a lot of people out, uh, yeah. a lot of Indians out specifically. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, where was Oh, yeah. So, uh, so that guy, that's, I can't remember my exact mindset for doing Arabic in college, but it had to do with the fact that my degree, I had to have a language specialization. Okay. And so I did Arabic. Uh, All right. Awesome. So I just began the process there. And who was teaching? Do you remember your professor's name? I do. Muhammad Alwan was one okay. of them. He was the department head. He is Iraqi American, uh, but Iraqi first generation. Okay. Uh, he's retired now. Do you ever keep in touch? I saw him maybe 2008. Okay. Randomly. Okay. Uh, but he was he was retired at that point. He had a, a pretty sophisticated bookstore in Boston. Okay. That he ran that he had to close at one point because right, it cool. just didn't have. But it was a he imported rare books from okay. the Middle East. Interesting. Yeah, he was a nice guy, real friendly. All right, cool. So you're taking Arabic as a second language. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then, I mean, I wasn't very good at that. Point. Yeah, this was like the first my Arabic's time. terrible. So let's right. not even get into that. <laughs> it was it was a very intimidating language at first. For me, it's the grammar is is so difficult. I, so I could speak it conversationally. Yeah, I could read it. Yeah, um, like I could read and understand. Sure. But then you ask me to write, and I just don't know what to do. All right. So this isn't my analysis, but this is a theory. As I heard this specifically, Mahmoud Buckle, who's a Arabic teaching as a second language specialist, he's in uh, UT Austin, but he said basically for native Arabic speakers, the intimidating thing is grammar. Yeah. And for Arabic as a second language speakers, the intimidating thing is vocabulary. Because of the kha. Well, it's more da. like there's just no cognates with English, right? Yeah. So, so you have to learn everything from scratch. Yeah, the, that's true. What I tell students is after about year three, four of putting some time in, so you got to get your hours in, Yeah. but then you start noticing the, um, the whatchamacallit, the forms of the Arabic words, you can identify the three-letter roots in a word that might otherwise be unfamiliar. And you can use that to extend your vocabulary really quickly. And will that point, they'll start to realize how difficult grammar is? <laughs> the gra all right, so the grammars, I don't know, man. I, I So, all right, oh yeah, so going back to native speakers of Arabic, yeah. oftentimes what happens is, and tell me if this happened with you, Okay. there might have been a teacher who put a bad taste in your mouth. Left a bad taste. So in the Arab world, oftentimes... That's very interesting. The, the Arabic teachers are known to be especially strict yeah. and like uncompromising, which is really weird because traditionally teaching Arabic was seen as sort of a softening force for a teacher. Like Damn, you're taking me down some psychological <laughs> route right now because funny enough, so I'm, I'm American educated, English first, sure, my first language, sure. right? Arabic was the last I could remember of Arabic. Like my first, sorry, my first interaction with a teacher sure. was at the school in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. But it, she, it was, it was a joke Arabic. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't very good. So my parents put me into a special course mm -hmm. in a compound and it was taught to like 20, 30 students. And I just don't have good memories then. It yeah. was bad memories. Yeah. Yeah. But I think... Yeah, there was also one memory where I remember getting for this one memory is ingrained in my mind sure. where I got sick at that at that compound school, sure. and I got very sick, yeah. and that is the one memory I carry from there. Yeah, no, I would, that would leave an emotional impact on your memory. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, so that's I don't know about your specific education, but oftentimes native speakers who took Arabic classes in middle school, high school 
they have this almost traumatic experience with their Arabic teachers and it turns them off. That's so true. That's the, crazy. The thing about Arabic grammar, I, I tell people it's probably comparable to German grammar in terms of... Difficulty? How, what's that? In terms of difficulty? Difficulty and, and amount of rules and like sort yeah, of the structures ridiculous. of it. Um, but the difference, I always feel like German grammar kind of... I had to take two years of German. German grammar kind of restricts the language, whereas Arabic grammar kind of, if you if you get the basics down, it almost frees it up and makes it more poetic. That's allows interesting you to do look at it. The language. And, yeah. and, you, and you just got to look at grammar and realize that whenever they teach you a rule, just there's without exception, there's an exception. Yeah. And so it's like, we like to think of languages as these purely rational things, but they're human constructs. Yeah. They're very, they have. I never thought about it like that yeah. at all. That's it, an interesting when I look at it. I mean, I have a great book on Arabic grammar that just gets to the, the basic structure. Yeah. I think at this point in my life, I don't know if I ever want to get into grammar anymore. <laughs> like, I was never a language person. Like, I took sure. six years of French. I can't speak a word. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just never got... I was never interested in languages. Yeah. I was always into, like, math and history and, like, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Maybe it's just... Because isn't there, like, parts of the brain that makes you, like, I don't know, makes it easier for you to learn languages? Like, like a West, East, East, you know. Uh, there, may be. Uh, there may be. I just say you got to put the hours in and yeah. you got to have some sort of passion for it. That helps. Yeah. And then realize that no matter how much the grammarians try and pretend like it's a rational thing, it's it's a gut thing. It's like language you got to, it, you, it's a, they you say, it. it's like new language, <laughs> new world, they say. Have you have you looking to do a study of psychology with the learning of Arabic? No, I I don't see the thing in my field is if you go into Arabic studies, the next thing you know, a university will be like, we need you to teach this Arabic class, this Arabic. And you class. kind of get like so, restricted. Yeah, you got to be careful. So I I stick with Islamic studies, Middle East. Studies. But can you do it like on the side because that'll be an interesting study. I just wouldn't. Oh, like. And now it's sort of like to study yeah. the psychology of, of uh, just like you were saying how native speakers usually have a bad experience and that's a psychological thing that turns them off to the language. That'd be interesting to have just study on that. Yeah. You know, that would be, uh, that would be good. That would be a little bit outside of my field, but it would be good because you could use sort of like a survey yeah. methodology, which yeah. is relatively. And it's across discipline. You could bring a psychologist or someone in, yep. uh, who could understand it. That'd yeah. be interesting. Anyway, sorry, we, we got off, tra uh, sure. off track there. So, uh, you got into Arabic as a second language. Yep. And all right, then, and all right so then the big next step was in 1999. Okay. I was an undergrad at Tufts and I went to Egypt. That's a good school. I, yeah. And it's, it's one of the great things about Tufts is that it really supports study abroad. Okay. That's to great. the extent that the tuition for Tufts is, is relatively high, but their thing is if you do a program abroad, we don't even want you to pay tuition to us. You just pay it to the school you're going to. Is that to. still That's, a philosophy till today? As far okay. as I know, but then when I taught at the University of Puget Sound, I was actually surprised that a student that stays abroad is actually paying tuition to the university, and then the university goes and takes a, a fraction of that and gives it to the foreign study abroad oh, program. Interesting. Which I think is a default in American universities. So Tufts okay. is unique in their attitude. Wow, is, okay, I didn't know that. We're so supportive of study abroad. You don't even pay us money when you study abroad. We, you pay just that university. You pay, and you pay their tuition or yeah. Tufts no, tuition you don't in pay, that currency? No, Tufts doesn't get involved. Okay, Tufts' fine, fine. only involvement is, are we going to transfer your credits from abroad? And they're pretty um, accepting. Interesting. Oh, that's credits. awesome. So uh, I paid tuition. Well, my parents paid yeah. tuition to the American University in Cairo for that semester, which was probably one-fifth the tuition of Tufts. Yeah, of course. So, they, so in that, that's, was it a, a UC? Is UC, that it? Okay. yeah. 
Okay. So that's and, uh, that's 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 how Tufts shows its support. Right, for awesome. And why did you choose Cairo because there was an affiliation, or were there other Arab countries that you could have went to, and you just happened to choose Cairo? You I'm know, just wondering. I, you know, I mean, it's a good question. I just don't necessarily remember the answer to All it. Right, fair um, enough. But I it could, Cairo to to... has its appeal, right? You have yeah, the pyramids, yeah, the Sphinx, yeah. has an appeal. And during those times, it was a it was a very fun. And like, I had another uh, friend in high school who was Egyptian American. Okay. Different from what I was telling you about before, and uh, so I always had a connection with an Egyptian family. His parents and brothers growing up. Okay. Um, so that probably helped. They they were a contact over there. They put me in touch with their family members over there. Oh, so really that, cool. That probably helped me make the decision. And accommodation, is that something you handle on your own or the university helps you with that? Well, they had dorms, but I arrived in Cairo, found another stay break, and we got an apartment right in, in uh, Wusta Belad in downtown okay. Cairo. Like, which, when you tell Egyptians, they're like, why would you stay there? But it was great. It was, okay. it was an old European style uh, apartment, you know, giant sort of like three or four meter ceilings, okay, which okay. I always appreciate about European apartments. And uh, it was really cool. It was, I mean, we'd hang our clothes out to dry and we'd have to spray them with like a the equivalent of Axe body spray just because they smelled like pollution so badly. That's so crazy. But it was, it was like a hundred meters from AUC campus. Okay. It was, yeah, it, was it was just a cool place to be. I remember. So this is 1999. This is 1999. Okay. Yeah. So you so you go to Cairo foreign exchange student for three months, four months, four months, yeah, four months, and then yeah. So that kind of connected me with Egypt because I kept coming back. It was like I made friends. Egyptians are very welcoming, so it was easy okay. to make friends with, you know, Egyptian students at AUC. Okay. Um, and so I kept coming back and back like pretty much every year until probably 2013. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We go. Did you go there during the year of all the all the issues are happening? With yeah, the, uh, I went. You were there that year. I went 2011, but I went in the summer, so it was about five four months after all okay. that stuff. And then I was actually in Cairo in 2013. I remember I was kind of like restricted in my emotions, not not officially, but I I had to play it cool. I had to like, yeah, of course, I I had to keep my head down. That was the first time I ever had to do that in public okay. in Cairo. And yeah, that was right when the sort of coup happened. Do you feel when you went to 99 and then pre, you know, like, like 2005, 2006 and all that, and then when you went 2013, no. do you feel that the public received you differently? Like, do you feel like the attitudes, the energy? It did. But let me just say one thing. Egyptians are very good, better than Americans at sort of separating the politics from the individual. Okay. So they'll see me and they might hate American politics. Yeah. But they're like, but you're all right. Like, okay, they, so they could be like, we hate your government, but yeah. we like Americans. We like you. Yeah. Like, we, they can separate that very better than Americans can, I would say. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Lebanese can't do that. Can't. No. They, they look for religion and politics before the individual. Interesting. Right? Interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. All right. So, okay. So now in 1999, you're doing all that and then you, you, you keep studying. So when you graduate from Tufts? Tufts, 2000. 2000. Yeah, then I, uh, what did I do? Then I worked for just like a, a random company in Boston. Nothing to do with Arabic? No. Just, oh, okay. No, it was just a job I got out of college just to make some money. Then I traveled with a buddy after that. We saved up some money and we're like, this is, this is boring. Why don't we do something? So we went and traveled. We went to like India. Um, where did we go? I went back to Egypt at one point. I went to India. I went to Pakistan. A couple other places. Oh, well, I mean, I traveled in the Middle East for yeah. a while. But, yeah, all of this led to 
what happened? All right, then I come back to America, and then I'm like, I need to work on my Arabic. That was okay. a big thing. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do this. If I'm gonna learn Arabic, it's either I'm gonna lose it or I gotta focus. But on till it. now, yeah. you're still focusing on the language, not the history of Islam and Islam. It's still, it's still language and, focused, and, right? And I after college, That's after right. college, uh, I wouldn't say I focused on it like right away. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah, I just yeah. did in college, but and I did in in Egypt, but yeah, yeah. I wasn't too serious about okay. it. Okay, yeah. So, um, I, one thing I did notice in Pakistan with Muslims, I could use a bit of Arabic to communicate when English wasn't an option. Okay. And so that kind of forced me to try and use it. Um, and when I say, I'm talking like, like very well educated, oftentimes religiously educated Muslims, not, yeah. not like just everyday people. Yeah. Most people show, speak yeah. English in Pakistan or at least. You know, I've never been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember thinking it was kind of a, a way of communication with some people that was helpful. Okay. So that forced me to kind of try and use it. And That's then I cool. was like, okay, I need to, I need to do this. Um, so yeah. All right. So then I went to Yemen. That was the sort of big first step. Well, what year is this? So this was my ticket was scheduled to go to Sana'a Yemen in, on September 13th, 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that <laughs> flight was canceled. Yeah. <laughs> um, from Boston, right? From Boston. Okay. Yeah. I can't, it was, I think it was like a, I remember I bought a real cheap tickets. So it was like there was multiple layovers. Um, and then what happened? Yeah, so that flight was canceled, but then they started flights going again, maybe the 18th or 19th, and they got my flight up again. And my Oh, was, that, that soon? Yeah. I went oh, on, I didn't so know that. I actually left on September 20th, 2001. But, and my okay. father was like, I can't believe you're doing this. Like, do you understand? And the whole world was a very weird place. If, I don't know if you remember this, but for a while, like especially in America, no one, no one knew how this was going to play out. Yeah, yeah it was crazy for the government to make a move. So I went to a language institute in, in Yemen for eight months, um, from you know September two thousand one to I want to say March two thousand two, something like May of two thousand two, something like that. Wow. Yeah. This how how were you? Study. How were you received in Yemen? I was received well. But <clears throat> I, I can't imagine a lot of English speakers in Yemen. No, no, there's not. But yeah. that's good, right? So I was forced to use my yeah. Arabic. Um, it's a very specific dialect of Arabic. But, but. So this is right. This is in 2001. So 9/11. Th- I don't. I don't know how to say this. 2001. I don't know how advanced Yemen was. Was it no, still no, no, no. a very a, Bedouin culture? It's a Bedouin culture, right? No, I don't it, know anything. Well, so about I was in Sanaa, so it's an urban culture. Urban, okay. But it's no, it's it's a. Uh, it's a developing world country. For okay. Sure. Yeah. So were they aware of what happened in Idaho? They ha- they were they aware? Yeah. Was there any? Did they have any feelings that you feel like was there ever talked about? Like when you were there, like were you talking about these things? Yeah, we talked about politics. This was also when the U.S. was launching its war in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, which happened like October two thousand one. So yeah. that was all going on. I, I would say, yeah, people didn't look at me as like, oh, he's part of the system, the American okay. system. But I also, in retrospect, I didn't think put this together at the time, but in retrospect, like compared with especially Egypt, and this might, I don't know if this is a cultural thing or if this was specific to the time, but compared to Egypt, people didn't necessarily open their doors to me. Okay. And I, in retrospect, like years later, I'm like, oh, they probably thought I was a spy. Like they probably just thought, like, who's this guy? Why is he in Yemen? Yeah. Which is a reasonable suspicion. It is, actually. especially so, during those y- times. Yeah. Yeah. So it's reasonable, and I didn't think about it at the time, though. I was still pretty young. If you think, like, I was like yeah, twenty one. Interesting. Twenty. I would think I was tw- wow. whatever. Twenty twenty one. Yeah, I was yeah. pretty young. So you were eight months. Yeah. And you months. were teaching. No, studying? I was studying at a language institute, a private language institute. It's called 
SEL, I think, Sana Institute for Arabic Language. And how, and how I is know, like I the, doubt it still exists. Yeah, and how's the how's the daily life there? Difficult? Harder than Egypt? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's a it's a poor country, unnecessarily so, probably because it has it ha it's it's beautiful. Yeah, I've, like honestly, I've seen like pictures. It looks gorgeous. It's hard to get there. I feel especially yeah, you, now. You, I definitely felt like I was a little bit more out like on the fringes of the world like in in cairo you always kind of have this feeling in dubai too you always have this feeling kind of you're in the center of the world like yeah. things are happening that's just a yeah, feeling. Yeah, yeah. whereas in sana it's like the world is happening elsewhere and i'm just kind of trying to you know i'm almost like separating myself from the world a little bit oh wow uh, people were real friendly uh you know nice okay uh, and was it just polite. you or do you have like a friend or a call or like someone you I, I i went alone but i made friends over there okay, especially okay. arabic students did you was there other americans there when you were there uh yeah my roommates were american okay yeah, yeah, yeah. there were okay. random guys i just met over there interesting um it's a beautiful city the architecture is phenomenal they have a lot of natural beauty the mountains are gorgeous yeah um, i've seen pictures it's it has it has green it has good agriculture though a lot of it is dedicated to cot so they okay. there's a whole study of how like they're they're using way too much of their water resources on cot and it just if you think about it, it's like if someone this is yeah I've been I've been hearing about cot a lot uh, especially I don't know why recently I stumbled across it it's they chew it yep. right it's yeah it's a stimulant everyone chews it around. 1 p.m. from 1 p.m. to say 5 p.m. somewhere in that range. Oh yeah, do you know where I was? I heard that. Sorry, I'm, um, it was a Joe Rogan podcast yeah. where he had a guy that was kidnapped by Somali pirates. Yeah, you saw that, that one. one? I heard that and one. And he was talking about uh, how uh, the whole time they were chewing ka and they were just it was like a pile of it, and yeah. they just get basically high for yeah, and talk politics, and then you then people come down off it afterwards. Weird. Yeah, but um, it it, it has a lot of social uh. What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, liabilities that kind of come. Okay. Because like people, it's kind of like think about coffee or tea, right? Yeah, we're it, it benefits us. It has social benefits and whatnot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, cognitive benefits. But at the end of the day, you could say like rationally, we're taking a percentage of our income and just dedicating to this thing that that's fun, but it's not like doing a lot for us. No, it's, it's not like, a necessity to life. Yeah. Well take that and then ramp it up by a factor of 20. And that's kind of hot economically. Wow. So people are taking a massive portion of their and salary. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and people are poor and yeah. the water resources are over dedicated to it. I don't know what the situation is right now with it. Like okay. I suspect that the necessities of life have forced people to abandon it Wait, okay, or, or at least decrease it, but it, it just wastes people's money and it wastes water resources in a way that your average Yemeni could not afford at the time then, and I can only imagine right now. Um, yeah, anyway, all right, so you're eight months. Yeah. All right. And then afterwards? By the way, uh, you going there, you, you said something like, do you get a lot of pushback from your family? They just were like, why would you go to Yemen? That's Especially 2001, right? Yeah. And it was that I had made up my mind before anything had happened with 9-11, so... I had my ticket, I had everything, and then when the flights start going again, I'm like, well, might as well just fall Oh, through. so you didn't get like like massive pushback. It was just asking, why are you doing this? Or my was it like kind of like... My father kind of was like, I can't control your decisions on where you travel, and you seem to have made done it enough so far and figured out how to do it that we'll trust you to make the right decisions, but for the record, this doesn't seem like it's a great okay. decision. Interesting. Yeah.
and like your friends in America, they were, they were, did anyone ever ask you what the hell are you doing? We're, we're going to war with these people. Why are you going there? Did it happened that? so quick. Cause it, it was did like, happen very quick. Right. Yeah. Cause like nine 11 was September 11th. I was originally scheduled to leave two days after that. I didn't, but I left a week after that or nine days. Uh, after okay. That. So it wasn't, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of time for response. Did you have a lot of friends that uh, went into the army and went on tour in no, Afghanistan? Okay. No, not a, no, none, zero. Okay, interesting. I think I knew a guy in college that did, but no. Okay, interesting. Zero, yeah. Okay, cool. So you do eight months? So I do eight months then. Um, it's now 2002, basically, right? Yeah, into, yeah. into the spring of 2002. And um, Yemen's a little bit restrict. It was restrictive at the time. Like, I couldn't really leave Sana'a without some sort of government like you would, oh, okay. you would get on a bus and you you'd leave the city you'd travel down like you'd spiral down the mountains i remember you'd get almost seasick doing it because wow. you're spinning so much I, yeah you'd have to pull over and puke every once in a while um and then and then you'd hit like a checkpoint okay and they'd come on and they'd look at everyone they'd see everyone's yemeni except me, me. and they go you sir please come off the bus <laughs> and they'd be like where are you going and i'm like i don't know, i'm trying to go to aden or something like that to just check it out and they're like nope you need a you need government permission to like leave the wow. city basically and i was like okay so then and then to get government permission was so you were good. like reverse back checked yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, could, you couldn't do anything without official government permission and wow. oversight and everything like was that. there an american embassy at the time yeah yeah okay well, and you did you, you had to stay in constant contact with them or not really? No, they didn't. The U.S. Embassy in general, they they have a hands-off approach. And I, probably this is a generally embassy policy. It's like if you're in trouble, contact us and we'll advise you on how to get a lawyer or something like that. But otherwise, you're on your own and we can give you advice. And we can give you like official advice that you should have these vaccines. You should consider yeah, not yeah. traveling to these places. But that's they're not, they're not hands-on otherwise. And that's probably how embassies are around the world. Interesting. I, oh, okay. I just felt because of the time and the sensitivity of it, maybe they would have like asked you to hey, check in. Or I, I think go. they like you when you land in a country to, especially like Yemen, they would want you to send a notification that you are there in case they have some sort of official okay. communication, but that's it. They, okay, fair not enough. Gonna... Okay, so cool. So 2002. So then I went to Egypt again. Straight. We went to Egypt. Yeah, from Yemen. I was like this, I like kind of, you know, I'm... I did the Yemen thing. It's great, but okay. I can't. This is a little bit much. It's it was fun. St- I, it's not. It's not long term. It wasn't long term. Yeah. yeah. And so I continued my studies at uh, at a language institute in Cairo. Okay. Um, which was great because like lessons were dirt cheap, and so you could do private lessons for the equivalent. I remember it was like the equivalent of four dollars an hour for private Arabic lessons through an institution that was recognized by the government it wasn't like okay. a, a degree but you're getting how are you making money at the time to sustain all the traveling i this that i saved up when i was working after okay. college and that i was coasting on that and it okay. wasn't and it wasn't you'd it was because it it's so cheap it's so cheap yeah you could have always given like english courses i could have i didn't have to get a job just yet okay fair enough but uh yeah no so that helped um and, but then i did start actually running out of money um i did get a job in cairo doing some translation work okay yeah so that was like a side gig. Um, but anyway, I was doing Arabic for a while and then I, what happened? Yeah, then I was like, uh, I, you know, if I'm going to do this, I should have some sort of degree that testifies to it. Yeah, fair. So I transferred. She's been doing it for so long. Yeah. Because yeah. these are all language institutes. So I, I went to uh, American University in Cairo into their Arabic studies program, which now has transformed into Arabic and, Mid- and Islamic studies. It's got a different name right now. Okay. But uh, it was the Department of Arabic Studies back then. 
and I did a master's degree in Arabic studies, uh, which was good. It was the thing that was good about it was that it was I could get a master's degree in a humanities discipline for a fraction of the cost that I would pay in America. In America. Yeah. Because with a terminal master's degree, you're paying for it. Yeah. Uh, with PhDs, you can the university usually pays you a stipend and exactly. covers your tuition. But master's and you also study. I mean, you teach. I mean, like yeah, while you're doing UTA, a PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So and I I because I had a financial incentive, I completed the master's degree in a semester and a half. Oh wow, that's but really quick. It was like I found a loophole in it. Okay. Um, and so they uh, they were a few faculty members in the department were upset that I was trying to finish in a semester and a half, and they're like, "Absolutely not! This is ridiculous!" Because I was writing my master's thesis as I was doing my coursework. Yeah. And they're like, "I don't know how he's doing this," and they put their foot down, but they let me through that one year, and then after me, and I apologize to anyone that does it for me, they they actually formally instituted a rule that you have to complete your coursework, then you can get, begin. Because of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry. About Shout that. out to USC students. <laughs> <laughs> he's sorry. Yeah, I apologize. Um, so no, but I was just trying to do it as, in as few semesters as possible to yeah, avoid enough. tuition, and. Uh, Oh, yeah. So then while I was in that program, I took a class with a professor named Joseph Lombard, okay. who was at the American University in Sharjah until this year. Okay. Uh, he, and he taught me this class in, it was called Islamic Philosophy. Was that your first interaction with, with Islam in terms of like learning it? Because everything until now has been language focused. Sure. Was this your first like proper interaction academically? Formal, academically... Yes. Okay. Academically, I mean, I took some religious studies courses in college, but I don't remember them. They were in their yeah. comparative. They weren't Islamic studies. Academically, this was my first formal academic class in Islamic yeah, yeah. studies. Yeah. Because obviously you were, you, were, you were seeing it all around. You're living in the society and culture. So you're obviously impacted by the religion. Yeah. No. And, and I was that. taking, I was doing um, like, like I would, I would attend halakas in islamic studies like islamic law okay okay yeah uh, things like this throughout this process but that was not there was no degree this was informal this was you go to like a study circle once a week okay yeah um so this was yeah this is the first sort of accredited okay, study of islamic studies okay, but cool. i've been doing informal stuff on the yeah, side yeah. the whole time um and so yeah i love this class and he's a really good teacher he's he's a, he's a great mentor and he opened my eyes to a whole new world um, and it was very it's a very sophisticated class he was and he was a great teacher so joseph lombard professor lombard he went to yale for his doctorate okay so we became close and he was advising me you know look again a terminal master's degree you might want to think about a doctoral program after this and i had another friend at the time that was saying you should go into arabic studies and I, for some reason, I was kind of like, yeah, of course I should. But then Professor Lombard was like, you know, you should think about Islamic studies. I think you were exactly right. Yeah. And uh, he he put me in contact with the head of the Islamic studies program at Yale. Okay. For um, who's this Professor Gerhard Bovering? He's he's uh, let's see how old is he? he's got to be seventy. He's nineteen forty. So what is that? Nine. He's uh, seventy. Seventy-eight. Seventy-seven. Seventy-eight. Yeah. Right now, um, six foot five. Okay. Jesuit, priest. Oh uh, wow. German. Yeah. Okay. He's he's he's, he's uh he's kind of like a he he always plays kind of like the role of father figure to his his graduate students. I'd like to know how he got into Islamic studies. Um, That'd be interesting. He got into Islamic studies through the Jesuit 
brotherhood, they kind of were like, we need you to work on this. And he was going a different direction, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's a, a language master and he's been interesting. Very interesting. A dozen languages. At this point, was there a lot of Americans who were learning about, you know, the, the, who were getting into Islamic studies at this point? Like world, no, I'm not going to say world, it's like in America. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole contingent after 9-11 appeal that kind of went into political Islam and went in like mm-hmm. the, uh, Security studies, poli sci studies. Yeah. That's not. I went in intellectual history, and so that's probably been pretty. I think a lot of programs began and a lot of job positions began after this. But uh, no, I'd say those numbers probably remained pretty steady. Okay. Maybe they increased a little bit, but um, but compared to other disciplines, you'd say they're on the low end. Yeah, well, it'll be a, you take a big university with a graduate program, especially in religious studies, lesser extent Middle East studies or Near Eastern studies. They'll have a couple slots a year for a new graduate student um, in Islamic studies. Okay. So I don't know. At any given time, there may be. So that's, that's a good question. A couple hundred, a couple, a few hundred graduate students doing doctoral studies in Islamic studies. That's okay. my total guess. I'm just okay, fine. Fair enough. Here. Uh, yeah, so with the help of Joseph Lombard, uh, I was put in touch with the graduate faculty at Yale, the okay. Islamic Studies program. I got in touch with them. I visited them one summer, um, and I kind of you know, came on their radar. Professor Lombard wrote me a good letter of recommendation. I got into the Yale Islamic Studies program in... Oh, but I'm missing a step. Yeah, I did one other thing between them. Anyway, I got in 2005. Okay. But between the Arabic studies and that, I did this one-year program at the American University in Cairo, but it's through the U.S. Department of State-funded program. It's called the Center for Arabic Studies Abroad. Okay. CASA. Okay. It's a very famous one-year program, and they give you they, they cover your tuition. They give you a small stipend every month. Um, and that that was the thing. I had to do an exam, and I there's a CASA class. People that do CASA, it's like kind of... Um, there's a little subculture of people that have studied CASA. They go into a variety of fields, but it's, it's a great program. How many people get into it per, every year? Probably 20 to 30. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so it's, and, a, and so it's, it's a small group. It's a small group, um, and there's a, there's always kind of like this little, like, oh, I was a CASA 2004 or five person. Okay, it's we'll a little alumni some, thing. Yeah, on. well, yeah, there is an alumni. It's more like you meet them at academic conferences, and you're like, oh, I did CASA in 2001, too, and I did it in, like, the 70s. It's pretty old. Oh wow! Okay, uh, well, 80s for sure. I think it goes back to the 70s. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a program that's been going for a couple of generations, and uh, it's it's just it's a it's a great one year intensive Arabic program. Okay. That's funded. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, they teach they teach uh, modern standard. They teach Egyptian colloquial, and then in the last semester there, you can kind of specialize in what you want to do. Okay. So I did more Islamic studies, Arabic stuff. All right. Cool. Through that. Yeah. So then I then I was at Yale. Oops, sorry. I was at Yale. Uh, started two thousand five. Okay. Did my coursework, um, and then I, I yeah, we went from there. Okay. Then what part of Islamic history did you just like like that's that like it was your real like sub passion and the, the... yeah, it's a good. So so <clears throat> it would have been. I mean, you, as I'm going through all of this, I'm starting to narrow my interests. Yeah. Because you do a, a couple years of coursework. And you have your general exams. You have a thesis as well, right? You have to do a dissertation. dissertation. You have to do a, a, a what do you call it? A proposal. What's the word I'm looking for? There's a thesis, a dissertation, prospectus. Okay. 
Um, but you have to figure out basically what you want to do. So I was interested in things to do with Egypt. Mm-hmm. I was interested in things to do with Islamic law and Sufism. And I was interested, I always liked the Mamluks. I read about them. I remember in Yemen, like I remember kind of just randomly stumbling upon, upon them and I got fascinated yeah. by them. And then uh, one time I was working on some Islamic law studies okay. and I saw this tree and I, and I was kind of studying the Shafi'i method specifically. I saw this tree where it shows like which scholars stay with which scholars. Okay, well. And you can see these major points in this tree, this human tree, where uh, certain scholars have a whole bunch of famous students and they study with a whole bunch of famous people. So there's kind of like the, it's like a a node within this structure. That's really interesting. So the names in the nodes were famous names in the Shafi Madhab, like a Nawawi, for example. Okay. A Rafi, for example. uh, Ibn, Ibn Hajr, for example. And then I noticed there was a name that I was less familiar with that also had like a whole bunch of famous teachers and a whole bunch of famous students. Okay. Like, Who's that guy? And it was Zakaria Ansari. Okay. Who, if you ever go to the mosque of a Shafi in Cairo, if you walk into the masjid, there is a, an ante room. It's a ta- it's part of the masjid, and there's a grave there, and that Zak- that's Zakaria Ansari's grave. Okay. So he is like he was one of the most famous Shafis, um, in in the 15th century Egypt. Okay. He lived 97 years. He was a Qadi. He was Qadi al-Qudai. He was the chief justice of Cairo in of the Mamluks for 20 years, which no one had ever served that long before. Well, okay. Yeah. So he was a, he worked for the government at one point, but he was also just a, a very prolific and influential scholar. Very interesting. Yeah. So that so once I saw that, that kind of intrigued me cool. by him. And that's that started allowing me to... And uh, how long was his doctoral program? Was it two years? No. So the doctoral program was... I mean, all right, it's two years of coursework, one year of exams, and you're teeing at the same time. Yeah. Then you do during that third year, you also submit a dissertation prospectus, and then two years of dissertation writing. So the minimum okay. you're going to do it is five years. Um, and then do you um, have to, uh, I guess you go in sort of panel for your thesis? Sorry? Do you go in front of a panel for your you, thesis? You have, uh, you have, so you have your doctoral uh, advisor, your main advisor, and then you have two other readers. Yeah. Um, and they need to kind of sign off on the thing at the end. We don't have Yale doesn't have a formal defense like an oral defense. Yeah, okay. A lot of universities do, but there's there's an equivalent. Okay. It's just not as formalized. But uh, your readers have to sign off on things and and approve it, and then they kind of yeah yeah. Very interesting. Cool. And so this was so you re- so you got in two thousand four two thousand nine. You were done. So, no, I so because uh, Castle was two thousand four. Before the two thousand five. So two thousand ten. Two thousand five. Yeah. I got my first job in 2010, so I left the university, but I graduated 2011. Okay. I walked now, obviously, in those times, there was more and more worldwide issues within the Arab world, yep. right? Uh, rise of terrorism. You had, I, well, I, was ISIS 2011? No, no, I, no was after. Oh, uh, ISIS was... 2013? Um, I think it was 12? still the uh, Al-Qaeda and Mesopotamia in Iraq. That yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but you had a lot of worldwide conflicts to do with the Arab world and yeah. I guess Islam was painted in, in not, not in a positive manner sure. within the did you find that would impact you while you're studying in the States did you feel did you feel it um I felt that a lot of the money that was going into certain new positions in universities things like that were politically skewed it's more that like you had money pouring into think tanks you had money pouring into certain institutions to 
create positions where there can be experts in that in in sort of political islam but then you have a reaction to that where it's like no no let's not within the academy you have a mm -hmm. reaction where it's like no let's put money into balancing out that narrative as well okay so especially like at a liberal arts college they might open up a position in islamic studies but they'll want to look at you know uh islam islam and I don't know interfaith dialogue. So I'm just okay. I'm just making this yeah, up. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's almost the position itself has implied that we're going to react to the money that's going into okay. these think tanks that okay, is looking okay, okay. at Islam and terrorism. Okay. So they'll try and a lot of the universities sort of they'll try and balance that stuff. Did you ever like get a confrontation with anyone who's anti-Islam or had? I did uh, in Tacoma, Washington, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, what was it? I had invited a speaker to campus, Haroon Mogul. Okay. He's, he does, he does a lot. Um, he's kind of like a, a, an internet, or sorry, a television and internet expert and personality. Okay. And uh, he does Islamic studies too. Yeah. Academically. But I brought him to campus. He was giving a talk on Islamic law in America. And it was, the students were real receptive and they were, they were glad to be there and they asked the right questions. But in the audience, there was, like these representatives of this right wing stop the, it's like ACT and act for America. I think that's what the group is called. Okay. Um, and they were, their thing is like Islamic law is going to take over America. Like, let's be afraid. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, they're really crazy. And, uh, they were, I just remember there were these, it was a small classroom and there are these adults in there that I didn't recognize. They okay. didn't look like, people part of the community and the rest were students. I think one of them was drunk, like, <laughs> um, and then they were like disrupting. And actually this is Tacoma. So like people have guns and I was, there was a, okay. there was a little voice in my head. Like this could be sketchy. Like, this is Washington, Washington state. Washington okay. state. Yeah. I, how's it, I don't know the gun laws there. Oh, gun laws are lax. Okay. Yeah. And there's a, there's <laughs> concealed weapons laws. You can also have concealed weapons. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, because I know Texan law, and you can basically walk oh, Texas, out. You, you can do whatever you want. Unconcealed. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Open carry was. <laughs> uh, no, you know, with Tacoma, like I'm from Boston, and everyone like it's, you know, road rage and like curses each other on the road. You do not want to do that in Washington State because like someone can okay. shoot you. <laughs> but Boston has strict weapons. Law, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Till yeah, no till now. Till now, yeah. Okay. Most of the weapons deaths, from my understanding, in in Massachusetts are from illegal weapons. Okay. Um, whereas in Washington state you could get, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't scream at someone in road rage in Washington state. Yeah, I get that. Um, so what was it? Yeah. So, so I know. just, the, there's a little voice in my head, like kind of afraid of that. Okay. There was a confrontation okay. that was with people that seemed a bit emotionally un, unstable. Okay. I remember that. I haven't had a lot, but it comes up here and there. Have you ever like debated against any people who are anti-Islam or, or, or? You know, I'm not. I'm not the best at debating. Okay. Uh, I'm more of a moderator and kind of diffuser. Okay, sorry. And I mean, if you look at these people now, like a lot of people, Joe Rogan interviews. They're like their job is to debate. Yeah. It's, I'm a teacher. And yeah, teaching's we, not debating, in my opinion. No, fair enough. Look, like I was just thinking because like Yale has a has a great um, it's a great history of debating, and, sure. they, and they love to do that. I thought not like in terms of a like a aggressive debate, maybe like an intellectual debate, and it's structured. Someone, and, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's just not that? my it's just not my forte. But okay, yeah, there's fair. a need for that for sure. Yeah. yeah.
And there are some people that are very good at that. Yeah. And then they, I think the secret is they remain cool under fire. Yeah, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it either. It's not, I can't do it. Like, I just kind of like, what's going on? Yeah, like, especially being ethnic, you have like ethnic rage that yeah. you have to fight against. Yeah. Yeah, you want to you react and you want to yeah. like come at them with the same, you know, emotion they're coming at you. Yeah. But the people that do it successfully are the ones that don't do that. Yeah, like and I, Sam and I, Harris. Yeah, that guy. He guy has, he can be the cold, he can be so calm. Yeah. I, I that's find, it, that's his... It. Yeah, I know. That's, that, that's what makes him so good. Even if yeah. I don't agree with him. No, I don't agree. His with him. debate skills, I find, are phenomenal. Yeah, that's that's what his skill set is. Uh, and it just blows me away. Yeah, yeah. Like Richard Dawkins, for example, gets very angry. Yeah. You had Hitchens who was who'd go off the chains, right? Yeah. Um, Dawkins. Dawkins gets angry. He he seems like an angry old man. Yeah, he gets he gets angry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but him, Dave Rubin. Um, I Dave Rubin, um, I think he's he's part of this libertarian movement right oh, now in America. No, he, has, right. he has a show called the the Rubin Report or oh, something well. like that. Right. But he's very good at being very calm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Even Jordan Peterson, who's usually very calm, he has some times where he'll get a bit angry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but Sam Harris is that's his skill set. That's, that's what be, makes him so yeah. hard to debate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. All right. Cool. So where were you now? So this is about post two thousand eleven now. Yeah, post 2000, where are we? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I was at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington uh, for six years. Uh, okay. That was my first academic position. Okay. Uh, that was, yeah, I was assistant professor of Islamic studies. It was a teaching heavy position. Okay. Um, which was the first time. So at Yale, you're like, you have this phenomenal library. So you do research and, and you, teach. You, yeah, right. you and the, and, the, and the students, oh my God, they're so easy to teach. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, I, I, you're what, whatever the opposite of training with of swimming with weights on. You know when they say like you swim with weights, so you yeah. if you took off the weights, you'd be a better swimmer. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the the opposite of that with Yale students for teaching. It's like they're so easy to teach that the minute you have students that aren't that way, you're just like, oh no, how do I deal with this? Because like I remember for Yale students, I would come to class. We were going to discuss a text, and I would just think of like three kind of open-ended questions. And they would take it from there. They would they would have done the readings. Okay. They would have thought about the readings. They would have like taken notes on their own about the readings and restructured the readings like without my prompting them. And then they would have wanted to demonstrate their understanding and share their position on the readings in class while respectfully allowing their their co students to speak and like kinda of, it was just very simple. Goddamn overachievers. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> And then and then I went to the university. Making the public universities look terrible. Right. <laughs> and then I remember I went to the University of Puget Sound and there's a culture there that get the students get accultured into and by their second year of like you don't want to stand out in class necessarily. Okay. It's like blend in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh and that was hard to adjust to because if you're coming from where, Yale where you just give them an open ended question and they, they just jump in. Yeah. The, yeah, this one you have to like pull like pulling teeth. It's like pulling teeth. You have to I mean, I learned it from my colleagues on how to do it because it was 
a new world for me, but you have to find a way of having them relate to the material that otherwise might seem foreign to them. Yeah. Bring it to their world first, and then through that access point, then you can get them to talk okay, about sure. it. Do, have you found over time that most of your students are Americans trying to learn about Islamic studies and all that? Or is it, or do you actually get Arabs who are trying to learn more about it? Or do you get like a mix? So in Yale, it's a total mix. Okay. Very uh, diverse yeah, body, international right. students. Tacoma, at the University of Puget Sound, it was very non-mixed. It was a uh, um, majority of students from the West Coast. Vast majority are white. Vast majority, are, I mean, vast, 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 vast majority are non-Muslim. Um, I had a, I, there, a lot. All right, so my, my colleagues in the field of Islamic studies, one thing that they'll sometimes complain about when they're teaching is what they say students who want sort of the Sunday school narratives in class. Mm. It's like, this is how, what I learned about Islam in Sunday school at the masjid. Why aren't you teaching it that way? And when I say it's like they're, they're doing more of an academic study of Islam where you look at history, you look at institutions, you yeah, look at yeah. change over time instead of like, let's focus on a, a sort of normative tradition yeah. that is unchanging. Um, and I never had to deal with that because I never had any, I had, no exaggeration, I probably had five Muslim students in six years at that university. Oh, wow, okay. Which is crazy. Like, it is, it is very crazy. None of my colleagues could really relate to that. Yeah. It's, it's particularly unique to that university. That is very unique. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so that was actually, yeah, Tacoma wasn't, <coughs> yeah, wasn't uh, culturally a good fit for me. Okay, I feel you. Yeah. So when did you leave there? I left Recently, there in 2016. Yeah. And then you came straight here? Came to University of, uh, sorry, to American University of Dubai. Uh, how did you get a job here? Did it was like through contacts or you No, they you were interested uh, in Dubai? They were advertising. I was I have been interested in Dubai for a while actually. Um, specifically Dubai. And it's they were advertising and they were advertising at a at a weird time in the year. Okay. So most of academic Job offers go out in the fall. Yes. And this university started advertising in the spring. Uh, sorry, in the late spring, early summer. Interesting. Okay. Um, and yeah, no, I w it was uh, Middle East studies, but with a focus on Islamic studies in my teaching. Uh, it was they they offered me an associate professor rank, which was nice. Uh, so that was a move up. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, no, I, actually I like Dubai. And did you know about Dubai before that point? Like, I've you... been to Dubai okay. twice before, before but it, it had been ten years. Okay, a good ten years. Okay, it's like early. It was it was when I was going back and forth to Yemen. I would stop in Dubai on my way back. Okay, yeah. Oh, so you have you had a very different view of Dubai than it was thousand sixteen. Yeah. Thousand sixteen, it's a different yeah. world. Yeah, I think the last time I came to Dubai, actually, the, probably the last time I came to Dubai may have been two thousand three before this. Okay, but still, it was very yeah, different. Totally so. different. Were you like blown away by then? Like by how? How it just advanced so quickly? Yeah, yeah I was. I, okay. uh, yeah. And were you married at that point with kids? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And did they be, were they like totally cool? Let's go to Dubai. No, they, they were excited about it. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's 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 a really interesting journey. Yeah, that's well, an awesome a, journey. As a friend put it, it's kind of like, as I've told people, like everything I liked about everything I hated about Tacoma is better here. Everything I liked about Tacoma is worse here. It's like the exact same. But that meant, meant it was sort of like a net. Mm. A net positive. Have you ever thought about maybe writing a book or documenting your journey? Because you've done some, you've, you've been to some interesting places, you, you, you've interacted. Yeah, ever thought of documenting that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, uh, I've thought about it and I was like, ah, who'd read that? 
<laughs> so that the thought kind of comes in one ear and goes out. Yeah, but like even if they don't read it today, they might read it tomorrow, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe your yeah. grandkids would read it one day. Yeah. No, I got to. Uh, I have a. I, I mean, I got like two other book projects. So first, I gotta. All right, cool. I gotta hammer out. All right, so now funny. we know your journey. Let's dive into a bit of the publication you worked on. I, I, I have here that you worked on a book, Egypt and Islam. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I'm working on that. Oh, uh, is that is that still working? Okay, it's, it's, forth, it's a work in progress. Yeah. Um, <coughs> that's. Uh, I have my chapters. Yeah. So okay, do not want to get into that. All right. Well, yeah. No worries. And one I found quite interesting was uh, you wrote a. Is it an article or a book about Zakaria Ansari? So I have a monograph manuscript ready to go. I have a, I, I, I'm in talks right now where I'm sort of waiting for a response from a particular publisher. Okay. Um, with a with a backup in mind right now, but that's ready to go, and that's uh, right. that's the big thing I'm focusing on. So right Zakaria Ansari goes hand in hand with the Mamluk period, correct? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Can you give me a bit of understanding about? I I know the most basic basic about the Mamluks, right? Okay. So let me know, like. Most people don't. Sure. So from the mid-13th century until the Ottoman conquest in 1517, okay. the Mamluks were the... It was a sultanate, so it's a, it okay. a political dynasty um, of sultans ruling in over the Levant in okay. Egypt. So we're talking... Levant, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria? Lebanon, Jordan, Syria into Egypt. Palestine? Palestine, yep, into Egypt. Egypt's their their power focus, their sort of sorry power center. Down, they also got into the Hejaz. So the, What's the Hejaz, sorry, the west coast of Saudi Arabia, the Arabian okay, Peninsula. Okay, okay. Um, and so they had a big empire. Yeah, it was big. It was powerful. It was unique in their sort of model of political succession. Okay, which I could talk about. Uh, they and were slave rulers. So okay. That's why they're called Mamluk. So Mamluk means the like, one who's possessed, like, uh, owned, owned, and the the plural Mamalik. So they're like the sultans who who come from slave origins. Okay. Wow. And so, how did they rise to power from slave origins? So they were the uh, the Ayyubids were the dynasty that preceded them. Yes. Yep. So they uh, were the 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 first Mamluk. Ruler, or technically the second, he was the slave of one of the last Ayyubid. Okay, what was the name? Uh, he was was at Babers. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, where? Am I? Oh yeah. So okay. So how it worked was, a sultan would come to power. Mm -hmm. We'll start the story this just because I need to start somewhere. So the sultan would come to power, and immediately upon assuming power. They would import uh, new slaves from okay. the Caucasus area. So, it, okay. it, uh, they were, their slaves were specifically the ethnic groups. They were Kipchak and Circassian Turks. Okay. Like, and when we say Turks, it's like Turkic people from the Eurasian steppe, like okay, from the yeah, islands yeah. of Eurasia. Um, and so, immediately upon coming to power, they would import a new militia of okay. of slave soldiers yeah. who, who were their soldiers, their personal militia. And the, this militia would kind of grow up and be fiercely loyal to their sultan. They're still slaves. Yep, they're still slaves. The sultan, well, I'll come to that in one second. So the sultan dies. Yeah. The slaves, his militia would kind of, one of two things would happen. Either there would be a, a, a de facto ruler amongst them, someone who was the stronger than the other ones, or they would fight it out amongst themselves until the strongest emerged. But wouldn't the sultan pass his power to his son? 
No. So what well, it did happen a couple okay. times. There were a couple little sub dynasties of uh, dynastic rule within it. But this is the the model I'm giving you is the default model. Okay. Right? So the, the otherwise the way it worked was the sultan dies, and his militia fights amongst themselves or come or or coalesces around one strong man within them. Okay. That person becomes the new sultan. But they'd also be slaves to him. So when he becomes the sultan, he there's a ritual manumission or free, freeing of him. So it's this ritualized thing where he becomes free. Okay. And then one of his first orders of business is to import his own militia again from the Caucasus. So what happens to the current militia of the people he fought with? So he's got a few options. He could probably the the go-to option is you try and employ them in the bureaucracy. You pay, okay. them, you pay them off with some sort of position. In, Wait, in so the they won't be slaves anymore. They'll be. Oh uh, no, they could be slaves. Okay, they definitely could be slaves. Uh, usually, the ritualized manumission happens through for the sultan. Okay. Uh, but they could be freed, yeah. Then how about the non-soldier uh, slaves? Would they just the say... The population, the civilian population? Yeah, like, or like... Because they'll also bring in slave labor as well, right? Not just, not just there, soldiers. There are, there are a bunch of slaves, um, this, and the Mamluks would also have children that could be born free. Okay. Um, so you're producing new generations of non-slaves throughout this process. Yes. And you're importing bring new slaves, slaves into it. It's like a cycle. It's a cycle, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's, I mean, there's whole articles written about kind of the hierarchy of slaves, why people import slaves, wow. what, what were people looking for. Right. I'm just, sorry, I'm it's just definitely to... a different institution yeah, I'm, of I'm slavery to... than people think about with, like, say, American slavery. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to just put my hand around it. So let's, let's imagine, like, we'll take the, the origin. Let's just, just for sake of conversation, sure. right? So a slave is like a powerful soldier. He becomes a new sultan. His... Uh, air quotes colleagues the guys he fought with yeah he tries to give them money or tries to put him in bureaucracy give yeah. him like some minister whatever that was yeah. and then he brings more slaves his militia now more and more militia to be slaves now he dies yep right wouldn't the people he put in, in bureaucracy the ex-slave soldiers wouldn't they want to become sultan or do they now have to compete against the slave militia who want their own guy. They have to compete against the slave militia and the, and the, the slave militia was empowered and they they had a, a leg up okay. in deciding amongst themselves who would be the next sultan. And in fact, if there was sort of a, a, a leader amongst them, mm -hmm. that person would be the most likely, the strongest positioned to yeah. take over. Okay, makes However, that's all pure theory yeah. because you're exactly right. There could be a succession crisis. Yeah. And in the later years of the Mamluk Sultanate, you had a lot more instability in the government. But I always okay. tell my students that the way it worked in pre-modern times around the world, you didn't want the worst case scenario for everyone was, uh, you know, political instability and a succession crisis. So everyone yeah. had an incentive yeah. for a solution to be found Makes quickly. Sense. The quicker you can find a solution, the better off you are. Um, just for everyone's sake. So there was an incentive for people to coalesce yeah. around a person and also to look the other way if that person killed all their enemies to make sure they got the position yeah. of power. But then then all this this Mamluk sultans, but they're all their origins are not from the they're not from this Levant Levant area. They're coming from the Caucasus. Correct, yeah. Circassian Turks. Yeah. 
So how was the the people of the areas of ruling okay with being ruled by a non-native, uh, if you want to say it? Well, all right, that's a good, very good question. But um, they say that Egypt, specifically Egypt, has not has been under foreign rule since from Pharaonic times yeah. until Gamal Abdel Nasser. Yes. Right? Well, I mean, there was a guy right before Nasser, uh, Muhammad Naguib, but fine, let's ignore him yeah. for a second. Nasser was the first Egyptian to be the ruler of Egypt since late Pharaonic times, the end of the Pharaonic times. Wow. So, um, I mean, I don't know, I would have to think of, because a lot of it, to make that statement work, you have to have sort of a very specific understanding of what it means to be Egyptian. Yeah. The the Mamluks, yes, at this time during the Mamluk Sultanate, they would have spoken Arabic for the most part with a foreign accent. They yes. would have they would have been, you know, ethnically and in their identity, they would have seen themselves as not Egyptian yeah. per se. Their children, however, it's a different story. Yeah. And so like the late right. Mamluks, because they continue even after the Sultanate ends under the Ottomans, they were thoroughly Egyptianized. So okay. there might be a, a, an ethnic identity. I'm sure they take also Egyptian wives. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Just to, yeah, to, to, yeah. to integrate into their culture. yeah, and 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 a, I mean, and a lot of a lot of people that came into Egypt at this time yeah. in the, under the Mamluks were outsiders who then Egyptianized yeah. with one well, or two. Generations. Alexander Great was also notorious for doing that. He said, "Love to marry local women and to integrate in, the culture." He, was he in, yeah, he was in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, of course he was in Egypt. Yeah, uh, Alexandria. Yeah, and. You went to Siwa? Uh, yeah. So he was uh, one of the earliest foreign rulers of Egypt. Yeah. Um, very, very interesting. Yeah. So where would you find the historical information to study this time period? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, there's... Was it well documented? Oh, you mean the primary sources? Yeah. Um, yeah, it actually was. Uh, there's a lot of uh, chrono chronicles. There's a lot of biographical dictionaries. Mm -hmm. Great, a lot of them are published. Some of the most important ones are published. Um, there's there's a huge manuscript tradition. People were very there were very good historians at the time. Okay. So people were 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 writing history, were writing chronicles, especially where you you do it by year. In this year, these events happened. This year, uh, there were there were court historians, uh, court chronicles that would actually be sort of employed by okay by the government to okay. kind of document things. You have you do have court documents as well. The problem with court documents, so like uh, court rulings, you have fatwa literature, things like that, that is associated with courts. So you can talk about that. You can you can paint great stories about history through that stuff. The problem is it just takes one fire to destroy all that material. Because the difference between like say a court like Library of Alexandria, for example. Yeah, that, that would have been down. before. But yeah, yeah. The, or like what they would do is it's, it's the it's papyrus and it's highly it's all over papyrus. Oh, no, no, we're dealing with paper now. Okay, so, oh, yeah, yeah papyrus is early. Papyrus is yeah. expensive. Is the problem? Okay. Um, when we're dealing with paper, it's but just so here's the here's the difference. If I write a chronicle, that's a text that people are going to copy. Yes. And there'll be multiple copies, and so. They're not stored in one place. Yes. If I have a court document like this documenting a judgment and or a property, uh, this person sold property to this person, yeah. I keep it in one spot. There's not going to be copies of that for okay. the most part. Um, the Ottomans were a little bit better at making copies, but not a lot of copies. This isn't a, this isn't a book where there's sort of a, a textual stemma, as they call it, where you okay. have multiple manuscripts coming out of it. It's like there's one document for one court. And if it's lost or burned, it's gone. Lost, burned, that's it. There's no copies of it. And it takes, if you think about it, it's been five, six hundred years since then. 
you talk about statistics, it's like there maybe there's a one percent chance of a fire in a given year, but over you know every year you're rolling the dice a little bit. And yeah, over five hundred, over hundreds of years. It just takes one fire to wipe it all out. So, but they do exist. Okay, they're like tropes that people. And you're studying this all in Arabic, or for a translation of the original? No, I, I work in Arabic. I don't work with a lot of documents, so I work with mainly. Uh, so you speak completely flu- uh, fluent Arabic. I went and grammar and yeah. write and everything. And, and this is the Arabic I. I, I built my studies on was sort of classical Arabic. Okay. But Mamluk literature has a has an idiom, has a certain way of writing. It I mean the rules of Arabic are the same. It's there's a there's some very specific vocab words that mm-hmm. they use, technical terms, terms of art that they use that um that you just gotta learn. But would it's they, not would, it's not rocket science. Would they ever ever write in Turkish? Uh, under the Ottomans, that would start happening. Yeah, okay. But no, during this time, no. Because where, because where, where these sultans are coming from, their origins, it's, it's not Arabic there, right? No, correct. It is a tur- it is Turkic language. Turkic. Yeah. Okay. Um, but no, they would. Is a language that still exists today? Turkic. Well, no, that that's the family, the sort of fan. So instead of saying Turkish, which you okay. have very specific understandings of, it's it's these are languages from the Eurasian steppe. It's um, a dialect. Uh, you know, that's a good question. You could look up Circassian, sort of what, I mean, I'm assuming it's uh, it's sort of in the same family. I don't know how the branch, how it's related to contemporary Turkish, modern Turkish. Okay, so with these Mamluks, would they, would I... They would write, the, the, they would the, write the, the official documents would be in Arabic. Has there been any documents or manuscripts found written in Turkish by these sultans that maybe tell a different story or have... Thing that that's different from what they what we see in the Arabic writings. Has there anything you ever know, been found? You know, that's a very good question. Like a, um, like a journal? No, they wouldn't. They 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 probably have someone write for them, and that person would write in Arabic. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and you also have to keep in mind that this is a small elite mm-hmm. that is ruling over. Um, Many countries. Well, many countries and a much larger civilian population. Yes. And the power brokers amongst the civilian population are the ulama, the scholars. Yeah. Uh, so the scholars aren't, I mean, they can be part of the government, like Ansari was as a judge. Yeah. But otherwise, they constitute a massive body of, of primarily Arabic-speaking intellectuals okay. and, and scholars who the government rules with their consent in many ways. Okay. Um, is there is there any documents? So I'm asking all these these random sure, questions yeah. about this. I just find it very fascinating. Yeah. Is there any origin documents of these sultans before they came to the Laval area, written in their original? So documents, I'm not sure. I don't. I yeah. haven't heard of them. Okay. Um, there are there's a, there's mythologies and there's okay. there's sort of narratives of of or, origin narratives, origin okay. stories. Um, What's like, like the best one you've heard of? Um, I don't know. It gets that gets more pronounced within the Ottoman period. Okay. When, but uh, no, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I'm not a specialist in the in the Turkic aspects of the Mamluks. That that, is, and I don't even encounter it all that often in oh, the wow. secondary literature, like stuff that is documenting larger narratives of this time. Interesting. It's because you're, you're these are good questions, and I'm trying. I'm I'm checking my memory right now, and it's like I don't know of anything that's really bringing in the Turkic elements. Of have you ever met a scholar who focused on the Turkic elements of, of the Mamluks? Yeah. No, I have not. Okay. Um, that would be very niche, right? Yeah, and I don't, I'm just trying to even know what text they'd work with. Yeah. I, don't, I can't, 
promise that they exist out there. <laughs> yeah. So, like, would it would be cool if you can see the Sultan uh, when he gets to you know the, the Egyptian area, and then someone else can tell you where his actual origins came from from Turkic documents, and you can kind of that'll be awesome. True, and but like now we're dealing that. we're dealing with slaves though for yeah. the most part, right? So there's going to be a major disruption in their yeah. in their origins. That's true. Um, maybe maybe the most you can find is maybe like a purchase. Yeah, like oh, well, that, that exists for sure. That, those, okay. Yeah, those, those are documents, and those would have been... So when, when a slave becomes a sultan, does he kind of shed his slave identity and picks up a new sultan? Would he destroy, like, documents that showed he was a slave? Um, no, there, a there, was a, there was a certain pride okay. in that fact. Okay, that's very But there was a ritualized manumission ceremony that happened where the sultans... Uh, price was paid to free them and but there okay. this was not seen as like a shameful thing okay that you came that you were a have slave. you studied the ceremony How uh yeah that? i've read about it i mean i haven't again this gets into the mechanics of the mamluk okay. political order and i deal more with the ulama stuff but yeah very people have studied this for sure that's it's, very interesting it is interesting yeah um no there were a lot of like there were there are all these celebratory processions that happened when someone became sultan uh, all of it was meant to kind of you know, project their power into the public realm, mm. um, which they were very they good were, at doing. Mamluks were prolific fighters, right? Yeah, they were, uh, they, they were good fighters. They were yeah. Fighters. Yeah, they were Do you good. know, my first interaction with the word Mamluk was probably late 90s playing Age of Empires. Okay. Was it? Okay. It's a, it's a computer game. Sure. And you build civilizations. Sure. And if, if you choose the Ottoman, yeah, yeah, okay. you can get an, a Mamluk, like, horse rider or yeah. something like that so that that's famous because so and, that, and that's like the elite force of the ottoman army in the game yeah so the the mamluks continued after or the camels, under the ottomans okay. they um and there was there was an um, a, a mamluk it wasn't the sultanate it was technically ruling under the aegis of the of the ottomans but they had a lot of autonomy in egypt and they were the ones that Napoleon fought in the Battle of the oh, Pyramids. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the so they were the great Mamluk fighters. Yeah. Um, and they were known for their, their martial skills. Yeah. And they had their reputation, you know, stretched around the world. And then Napoleon comes in and he actually doesn't have physical technology that's superior to them. He has organizational technology that's superior to theirs. Wait, but didn't he have weapons they didn't have? Like terms it, of it like wasn't, gunpowder? It, no, they had gunpowder. Okay. Yeah, and it wasn't, so it wasn't a dramatic difference in the From weaponry. China? They would get imported from China? Well, the, the technology came from China okay. a few centuries earlier. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they all had gunpowder, uh, but that wasn't the difference. Okay. It wasn't the quality of the weapons per se, which is what people oftentimes think. It was the organizational technologies. Okay. So Napoleon's army was very well structured um, in terms of how they conducted themselves on the battlefield okay. and how they responded to commands from above and how they were regimented. Yes. Um, and that, so they used the, the, the newest organizational technologies available at the time mm -hmm. and taught these, and that's where they had a distinct advantage over the Mamluks, and that's why they defeated them at the Battle of the Pyramids. And okay. then that's why the Egyptian populace in general was like, okay, we need to take some lessons here from the French because they clearly stumbled upon something that we didn't know. Exactly. And that kind of sets off a soul searching and sets off the sort of advent of modernization in Egypt in the 19th century that had a whole, that brought a whole bunch of baggage with it at the same time. Oh, very interesting. Yeah.
Cool. Uh, let's shift it up. Let's talk about uh, the Sufi time period and all that because I don't know much about it personally. Sure, sure. Right. So if you could just give me a brief. Uh, no. About Sufism 101? Huh? <laughs> Sufism 101? Yeah, that's if you a, give me the cliff notes. Well, all right, that's a huge question. Um, but Zachary Ansari, I can, I can start with him. Like He was, if you, if you met him, he would probably identify first and foremost as a Sufi. Okay. And then as a scholar second. Fine. For non, for non, people don't understand what Sufi is. Sure. If you could define that. So Sufism is, I mean, sometimes they translate it as Islamic mysticism. Usually it's probably better to just keep it in, uh, untranslated. Okay. But it is the aspect. Now, the thing about Sufism, so if you, if you open a book of Islamic law, classical book of Islamic law, they'll give you first, like, what is Sharia? Yes. They'll give you d- these legal definitions, what Sharia was, fiqh, what is Ijtihad. They'll start with oftentimes a discussion yes. of that. Sufism, they'll try and start it too, though oftentimes a handbook of Sufism will start with the etymology of the word Sufism. Okay. But. Um, when it comes to definitions, people are all over the place. And there's kind of a reason for that. Because okay. Sufism, I mean, one thing we can say for sure is that people are agreed Sufism is kind of seen as a path. Mm-hmm. The Sufi path is a path to God Okay. that one traverses in their life through oftentimes the help of a, a figure, a, a guiding figure, a sheikh. Okay. Who kind of assesses their position along the path? Okay. The path is uh, filled with a variety of stations, mm-hmm. palms, and ahwal or states that one encounters along the way. And the su and the sheikh's goal is to kind of assess the Sufi's position along the path and advise them on how to move past that place or understand that place they're at, sort of psychologically. Um, how if if it's a problematic place, how to get past it, and then prescribe for them a, a, a series of of prescriptive litanies or atkar. Okay, uh, but is it is it its own religious path? Within, no, it's no, part so. of Islam. It's part of Islam. Yeah, within Islam, would, okay. you count, would you count as a sect? No, usually people look at it like because this all gets complicated when you get sort of reformist thought in the twentieth century, especially nineteenth and twentieth century, okay. especially twentieth century. Where there's kind of a movement to look um, negatively at Sufi Sufism, but there's 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 a thousand year history where I tell my students if you went back three hundred years, two hundred years, yeah, and you met a random Muslim in anywhere in the world, here's how they're there. If you're going to talk about identity, like we like to talk about today, their identity would be based upon the following factors. Well, all right, fine, they're Muslim, yeah, yeah. obviously. Um, their sort of ethno-linguistic identity, like yes. their ethnic, you know, what language group they come from. Yeah. Their madhab, their legal school, mm-hmm. like are they Shafi, Hanafi, etc. Uh, and their Sufi tariqa or path. Okay. Like, so are they Ashari? Are, I mean, sorry, are they uh, Shadli? Are they uh, Chishti? Are they uh, Naqshbandi? Are they, okay. you know, Khalwati? There's all these different Jarahi. Are, there's all these different orders a lot of them are international orders some of them are more localized orders these were structures that developed in medieval islamic society in, in the, the the later middle period no the middle period of islamic society of islamic history and uh these were hugely important to structuring society and structuring okay. people's relationship to god to religion to their their village their town their city Interesting. the international community of muslims just like methods okay because my, always my impression of Sufism, it felt like the way 
I heard of it, like sure. I never studied it, sure. but the way I heard of it always felt like it was like almost like a sect. Okay, like there's Sunnis, there's Shia, and there's Sufis. No, kind. Right. That's that's how it was always felt to me. People people do do that. Sufism's the word Sufism is coming out of Sunnism. Okay, but there are analogs and parallels within Shiism too. But uh, the word the term Sufism is traditionally coming out of Sunni intellectual history. Okay. Uh, but that is to, that isn't to say that there aren't equivalents within Shiism because there but are. There, there's some people who might identify itself as a Sufi, not yes. as a Sunni, right? And then you'll even encounter people today, like in California, that will say, "I'm Sufi, but I'm not Muslim." That's a very new phenomenon. That's where's like, the where's the originating from? That's coming from certain sort of uh, new age movements that sprang up, especially in California. I mean, I can give you an, a, a very famous example: is this guy? His name you can people can YouTube him named Sufi Sam. And oh, that the, sounds very familiar. Yeah, he has this thing called the Dances of Universal Peace. Okay. Um, and it was this this movement. It has it has origins within a, a traditionally trained Sufi sheikh, but this the, the movement kind of took it in new directions, and um, it it was just a movement that borrows a lot of terminology of of wordings of dhikr okay. from Sufism, the Sufi tradition. But kind of takes it in new directions, in new age movement directions. Okay. Uh, it's still you can still encounter it for sure. Okay. Yeah. But did it? Oh, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. Did it? Was the foundation of it? It obviously came after the the formation of Sunni Islam, right? Did someone? Did, was there like a founder or like a person who started the the, the ideas or or the or kind of was together? They kind of came up together. So it kind of. Came, all right, so if you're going to talk about Sufism proper, there's probably the usually the most important starting point, especially for that word, is what's called Baghdad Sufism. Okay. So we're dealing with the uh, 9th and 10th century. Okay. Baghdad uh, and... Is it specifically Baghdad or is it Mesopotamia? Is there specifically... No, they call it Baghdad Sufism. Okay. And Baghdad the city. Okay. Yeah. Um, there were a variety of people who oftentimes of a scholarly background, certainly of an intellectual background, who saw themselves as part of this broader movement mm -hmm. to um, to kind of, like, if Islamic law is for everyone, mm -hmm. Islamic law determines sort of the norms of society, the rules of how to conduct oneself, there's a more rigorous path, a more difficult path called Sufism, the Sufi path, that's not necessarily for everyone. It's, it's, okay. it's seen as more difficult. This is how they saw it. Okay, very interesting. And they use the word Sufi. So the word Sufism, any handbook of Sufism will start with the etymology of the yeah. word, where it comes from. And it will be like, so you take a classical handbook, like Kosheri Shusala, and it will start with, um, you know, they say Sufism comes from Safa for purity. And some say it comes from the Greek word like uh, Sophia, or I don't know how, how they Arabize it, but like wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then, and others say it comes from wool, suf. Um, and then others say this, and others say that. And the reality is that it comes from the word for wool. So why? What does wool have to do with anything? Yeah. So what it was was there were people that were uh, ascetical people in mm -hmm. Islamic society. They were ascetical. They they practiced sort of uh, a variety of exercises that opposed worldly temptations, desires, the nafs. They opposed the nafs. And one thing they would do is they would wear wool. Okay. And by wearing, the wool was the, the cloth of the average person, yeah. but of the, especially the poor. 
It was the because the wool comes from sheep, and and the average person would be a, like a, a herdsman or a farmer. It was cheaper than cotton because yeah. this was before the cotton gin. Cotton was fancy. Yeah, but but people who had money would buy cotton because wool is uncomfortable. Now today it's nice. Today wool is a fancy garment. Yeah. But back then it was like all the stuff the sheep picks up in its hair that yeah. was hard to get out. So, so hot, wool, itchy. Hot and itchy. Yeah, you would oftentimes have rashes from wearing it, etc. Yeah. So the poor would oftentimes wear it, but also the group, this group of people that were opposed to the nuffs, the ego, and would do things like they would do a variety of ascetical exercises to oppose it. One thing they did was wear wool. Okay. So Sufism comes and does sort of like this psychological analysis of a lot of early asceticism so and one thing they do is they need a name for themselves this group of people um if you want like one of the most important figures it's uh junaid junaid al-baghdadi okay uh, he was a scholar figure that was really instrumental in sort of because he's from baghdad yeah he, he was uh instrumental in the or- origins of sufism so did he coin the term well what the this group did was as far as we know, they started referring to themselves as Sufis because it was a term that no one had defined yet, so they could define it themselves. They would wear wool, or a lot of their members would, and they would kind of self-identify as it because if they referred to the, themselves as Zuhad, or those who practice Zuhd, or self-denial, then people would be like, okay, we know what that means. We know who yeah. you guys are. If they called themselves um, Nasikun, the people that practice rites, like do rituals, if they called themselves, um, you know, those who do ibadah a lot, yeah. things like that, people would understand what they were trying to say. They, people yeah. would say, we know who you are. They pigeonhole them. So they picked this word that didn't have a lot of meaning ascribed to it already. Would you think, like, I'm going to think this a bit on a business way. Sure. It would make sense to pick the word because it would appeal to the general public who are not rich. There, um, because there, the, the poor people wear wool, if there's a word that reflects what they wear on a daily basis, it appeals more, doesn't it? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I didn't... It was, sounds like a good business decision. That's a good brand. Yeah. Yeah. But oftentimes to be poor... See, these guys were sort of voluntarily poor. Okay. To be poor in pre-modern times, oftentimes came hand in hand with being uneducated because you couldn't afford to, yeah, you had to, you were, you were working and you were, you know, subsistence living. You didn't yeah. have, you need your children, for example, to work the farm or to yeah, trade. Exactly. You didn't have time to send them to school. Um, and these people were more voluntarily poor. They weren't necessarily trying to sell this to the larger population. In fact, a lot of impressions we get were that they recognized this was more difficult for the average population. Okay. That it wasn't like Islamic law. If you're, if you want to be a good Muslim, Follow the basics of Islamic law. Pray your prayers. Fast Ramadan. Do the basic works of 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 ritual, and do your dhikr. Remember God. But this thing that we are doing is not for everyone. It's too difficult for everyone. Okay. But then I find it interesting why the word was taken from a material that the average poor person would wear that would distinguish them. From the rich. That's what I found very interesting. So it was the the this group would wear that voluntarily because it was difficult to wear. Okay. And then they word themselves. It was they almost were, like a, a bit of a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, self-sacrifice. They were opposing their nafs, their ego. So this required. We could wear cotton. We're choosing not to. Right. We want to wear simpler uh, clothes. Yeah, simpler that clothes. That is harsher because we are opposing the desires of the nafs or the ego. Okay. Interesting. 
So, and the, the reason the term caught on was amongst themselves is because they could give it the meaning they wanted to. They didn't need to. Okay. If, if they refer to themselves as something else, people would see them as that other thing. This yeah. is a term they could define themselves. And what, then why is there a bit of, con, con, I don't know if contention is the word, um, like you said there's a discussion of where the origin of the word's coming from. So sure. people think it's this. And why, why is that? It's just whenever a handbook in Sufism will almost invariably, a classical handbook in Sufism will almost invariably start with a discussion of what the term means. Whereas in other Islamic disciplines, you'll start with a definition uh, Sufism kind of embraces the idea that there are a variety of ways to define it. Mm -hmm. And so it starts with the, or the origins of the word itself. Do you think there's subjectivity in defining it? Absolutely, yeah. Because I, I would find it interesting to see the income level of the scholar who's defining the word. Yeah. If he comes from humble background, is he going to go with the word that's related to wool compared to the person who's not? Right. Would that have an effect? That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. You mean today or back then? Uh, whatever scholars publishing and, and discussing the word. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, then Sufism is going to take a life of its own after this. This is just we're just talking origins yeah, yeah. of like the yeah, word yeah. itself. Uh, it's going to become heavily institutionalized as we move forward in time, and that's where you start getting, especially like the Sufi orders, mm -hmm. the, uh, the 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 brotherhoods, the fraternities. Uh, these are. It, it's an, an analog to yeah. the madhabs in Islamic law mm -hmm. in that it's a network of people that share a common sort of spiritual methodology, oftentimes involving certain ritualized practices of, of group dhikr or reciting, okay. you know, uh, words of praise of God or the names of God. And oftentimes they descend from the teachings of one early founder figure so okay. most of the sufi tariqa names go back to an individual who who started the sort of inspiration of that order okay like a shadali abul hasan a shadali okay he then the order that came after him is a shadaliya okay yeah interesting um so there's so, so this is like a, a basic institutionalization process. This is you see these parallels in a whole bunch of. And things. how is modern Sufism today? Okay, so a lot of reformists in the 20th century and in the 19th century, with institutionalization, you get, and this has been a problem since the beginning. You get a lot of like pretenders, okay, posers, uh, Sufi posers. You get a sheikh who will hand down the responsibility of the order to his son. And it gets, and not always, but a lot of these times you get, um, you get the same thing you get in any religious tradition where you get people that, you get sincere people and you get exploitative people. Okay. And so a lot of the reformers of the 19th and 20th century, one of their major critiques is that, hey, look at these, what some of these Sufi orders have become. They've become kind of um, like a sheikh a sheikh hands off the order to his son, to his son, to his son. It gets institutionalized into this thing that's almost exploitative. Everyone's sort of raising up the sheikh who inherited it to like almost the divine stature. Yeah. Um, who is this person? Their authority is not based in the traditional structures of authority. And they had a lot of critiques of this. Okay. And, and, and many of these critiques in their context, you know, context specific critiques were valid. Like you'll see things like if you read, um, Taha Hussein's autobiography. Uh, he talks about the sheikh, the Sufi sheikh, who would come to the village in Egypt 
and when news came that he was coming, there'd be everyone would sacrifice a goat or a sheep for him, and they'd they'd be fighting each other to see who whose house he'd eat at, and he'd, oh, wow. he'd, he'd eat to his fill. But these are poor people that can't afford to sacrifice a sheep, right? Like that's a major piece of property. Yeah, of course. To sacrifice, and they would do, and the sheikh would kind of like, in a way that you know that'd be a benefit to the sheikh and kind of exploit the situation. Tahu Hussein had a, a big critique of this, and. Many times it's a valid critique, um, but sometimes that the baby definitely gets thrown out with the bathwater, and yeah. some of these reformers' critiques kind of extend to the entire project of Sufism, which is gigantic and has been a major influence in Islamic thought since forever. Very basically. interesting. So, would you have right now? Let's say we take 2018, right? Yeah. Would there be sheikhs that are specifically studying or represent Sufism different from the other sheikhs, or how? Or is it? All Islamic sheikhs will have to uh, learn about this, or maybe I don't, I don't know how the structure would work. Yes, yeah, so um, well, it depends because a sheikh could be a scholar, could yeah. be a non-scholar, could be versed in the sort of general methodology of their order, their tariqa. But and it, when it comes to issues of broader Islamic practice, they might defer to a, a, a faqih or a jurist scholar, okay. or they might refer their students to that faqih. Depends on the context and who we're talking about. Um, but yeah, they're basically functioning. I mean, they, they're wearing a variety of hats. They're functioning almost like a therapist at many times. Like wow, kind okay. of, they do like they'll do a lot of. Uh, they'll speak with their, their, their students, their murids, their disciples. Aspirants is probably the best word. And they will see where they are on the path. They'll do dream interpretations. They'll kind of, okay, wow. um, they'll, they'll gauge where they are and advise them accordingly. So like they function as a therapist, they function as an authority figure in a broader methodology of how one should go about their rituals of Islam. Okay. They'll function as, uh, you know, the center of a, of a vibrant social network, the Sufi order. Um, I mean, this, the, these things, this could, Sufi orders will meet, you know, once a week, twice a week, even okay. every night of the week. So is there a leader of the Sufi order? It's usually the sheikh. She's the sheikh and the sheikh. Okay, will... but like the top sheikh, but he's the... not just of the Sufi order. He's of all. He's Islamic order. All right. So they'll have. So so take an international order. Yeah. Let's do like the Naqshbandis. Okay. Wait, Naqshbandi is a. It's a. It's a very old Sufi order. Okay. Going back several hundred years, um, the leadership today of the Naqshbandiya is based in Cyprus. Interesting. Yeah. Why uh, Cyprus? Uh, because th that they're eth ethnically Cypriot. Uh, so just like a Turkish Cyprus. Okay. Yeah, Turkish okay. Cyprus. Turkish. Um, because I don't know um, Islamic hierarchy, right? So is there there is, just like there's a pope? Well, no, there, there is no Islamic hierarchy. So like that's there's no the big... like one. Council of well, Islamic that, Islamic Council. This is one of the sort of tensions that defines Islamic history, right? There's no centralized equivalent of a church, so you have different ways of establishing authority in Islam. So there's no most equivalent of a pope. Nope. Uh, within Shiism today, you could say that a Grand Ayatollah. Okay. Or the sorry, the Marjai Taqlid. There, it's 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 more hierarchical. Okay. But even that is well. How about in, in Sunni Islam? Is there any is there any kind of hierarchy? No, but there's different ways of defining authority. Yes. Right. So there's legal authority. Some people would say there's um, legal authority that's supported by a nation state. So you could be a faqih, a jurist, 
and then you become the Grand Mufti of Egypt or the Grand Mufti of Syria or the Grand Mufti of insert uh, you know Indonesia. I okay. Think, I think they have a Grand Mufti. They probably. And, but the Grand Mufti would only be on the national level. Right. So that's the state saying we are pushing this authority okay. as determined. Now that now people can say good for you, state. We don't care. This is who we think is the actual yes. authority. Um, then you could have a Sufi authority. Uh, which could be more powerful in a given community than a juristic authority. You could have, uh, what else do we have? Um, you could have, I mean, uh, the political elites are also trying to define Islam, not just through tradition, like states have a definition of what Islam is. Yes. And they're, they're, they're you know, they're promoting that through educational institutions. But there's no worldwide authority, which is like the go-to. Nope. Not in, certainly not in Sunni Islam, and that—that's. Oh yeah. By the way, sorry. And then, and then in the modern period, you have, you have. All right. So you have. <laughs> these are big subjects, but you have um, sort of self-taught authorities. Yes. So look at the leadership of Al Qaeda. Yeah. That they're not they're not recognized as authorities according to traditional Islamic yeah. authority structures. They're self-taught. They, they're self-taught, and they're also claiming authority on the basis of being sort of political revolutionaries. Yeah, but they're not, they're not recognized as, as authority. Or their people recognize them. See, people, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. So, right, it's like all about... Subjectivity. It, well, it's all about, you know, how many people you can... How many people see you as an authority? Yeah. If the number gets big enough, then you're an authority. Whether, true. Whether we like it or not. No, that's true. Um, and then the state gets involved, and maybe that is... You can sell that as a deal. Maybe you can't. If the people, if the state says this is the go-to authority, and the people say no, they're not, then then it won't work, right? It's all about sort of people. The word might be imputing, projecting yeah. authority onto someone. And then the question is why? the The authorities, the way of determining authority in pre-modern times is quite different than how it is today. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's a credit, it's a degree granting institutions that confer legitimacy and authority. Whereas in pre-modern times, they were totally different. It wasn't. It was more individual sheikhs passing along authority to their students through a, a system called the ijaza system, the the, Very the certification process. Wow. This is like its own realm of, of like learning, right? To to really like study this. It's just this. Yeah, this it, path. And it, but the thing is, you find parallels in human affairs, all like yeah. institutionalization. Um, Weber might be a little bit outdated, but some of the stuff he charted, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Like these, the, the, the authority of a founder figure gets routinized into structures that take a life of their own that live on after the individual. And then that becomes sort of like a network of, of allegiance that determines people's yeah. social structures. Interesting. Um, one last topic I want to talk about is the golden age of Islam. Sure. It's, it's a, something that I recently came across funny enough. Uh, someone who talks about it a lot is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, talks about it a lot because um, astrology um, has been astro astronomy. Astronomy, yeah, astrology yeah. is like. Well, the, the people it? used to not. I was, I was get confused between like the ones who say I'm cancer. So I that's was astrology. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, sorry, my bad. Yeah, I'm sorry, Neil. Anyway, <laughs> so um, yes, yeah, so because because obviously he's an astrophysicist, I yeah. guess, and he talks about how how big of an impact the Golden Age of Islam had on astronomy. Sure. Yeah. So. So all I know that I think it was around was it eight hundred AD I think. Um, okay, so around that time, like ninth century, right? Yes, uh, ten. Uh, in, yes. Well, we, the foundation of Baghdad is what seven sixty two. Yeah. Um, so it's around there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah. what happened? And it was like for three hundred years, right? This is this golden age where there was just a rise and then this explosion of thought and yeah. science. So what it was, I mean, there's a variety of variables here, but basically the Islamic political rule mm -hmm. extended and encompassed a variety of subs uh, of previously existing civilizations. Yes. That in the century before had kind of um, become isolated from one another. Yes. So suddenly you have a new political dynasty that mm -hmm. that that covers all like so specifically Indian, Persian, mm -hmm. and Byzantine Greek. Okay. And then Arab. Now we're yes. throwing Arab into it, and you could do little sub subgroupings, but those are the big ones. Okay. Um. So there's this new political dynasty. Was there a was it a caliph at the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah which caliph was it? Abbasid. Oh, so no, this okay, is having on the Abbasids. Okay. Yeah. So suddenly you have a political expansion that's now encompassing all these subcultures and traditions, like yeah. learning traditions, into one political order. And Muslims at this time, especially if you have taken it, like if you look at the empire, the Abbasid Empire as a, as one unit, Muslims are a minority. Mm -hmm. The majority of the population within that is non-Muslim at this time. Okay. Um, so they're ruling as sort of a minority over a larger population, the majority of which is non-Muslim. Okay. Now that's going to change very quickly to become majority Muslim, but we're right at the yeah. edge there now where it's it's still uh, majority non-Muslim. And then you have an initiative from the political leadership saying, basically, to, su to summarize it, it's find all known knowledge, bring it together here. Okay. Find out all knowledge about the world and bring it here. And this was pushed by the Abbasid Caliphs? The Abbasid okay. Caliphs, yeah. Uh, and the biggest name in that is Ma'mun. Ma okay. um, he was one of the, he wasn't the, he didn't initiate it per se, uh, but this is all part of the translation movement. So yeah. go find what the Greeks said about medicine and philosophy. Go find what the Indians said about mathematics. Go find what the Persians said about astronomy, astrology. Translate it into Arabic. Use non-Muslim translators who speak those languages because they're part of the bureaucracy. They're paid employees, but they have one foot in that old way of doing things. And they have one way in sort of like Arabic. Have them translate it. We're going to pay for this and we're going to keep it in one area. Okay. Um, that was the goal. And where was it kept? Well, it was in Baghdad. Okay. Yeah, Baghdad was, was like a library. I mean, there was a library that. Uh, so the there was the House of Wisdom. It sounds like a structure, and it had a structure, but it was actually like a, a uh, an initiative, a government initiative. Okay. So even though when you say House of Wisdom, it the word it wasn't necessarily like Darul Hekma. It sounds like a specific place, and it had a library, it had a storage facility, it had a place for people to work. But I would say. It actually was a broader initiative of the government. Okay, very interesting. Um, and are yeah. those documents, things, uh, were they available to us now? Were we able yeah. to find them? Are they well preserved? Oh, yeah, yeah. And well, there's interesting things. I mean, obviously, some stuff gets lost. But of the, one thing that's fascinating is there are texts that were lost in Greek and they remain only in Arabic. Oh, wow. So there are, a lot, there are some ancient philosophical texts and medical texts. Um, that we read about their the original Greek stuff. It was translated into Arabic. It, it actually takes a life of its own within the Arabic tradition, wow. which is a new way of thinking about it. Um, but then the original Greek text is gone, and all that remains is the Arabic translation. Then wow. it will be translated back into yeah, different yeah. languages. But um, that's really interesting. Yes, yeah, so you have a, that happens. Okay. So now you have this 
300 years or so sure, yeah. of this like renaissance-esque age, right? Yeah. What's the greatest achievement to probably come out of this? The, the one that's probably the most impactful today? Um, nah, that's a good question. Okay. So there's a lot of things that came out of yeah, this time, right? Yeah. I mean, new way. All right. So they, I mean, one thing that always, I, was I know, but to, I know the study of the stars was really big. That's why a lot of the star names have Arabic origins, right? Yep. But they calculated the circumference of the earth and they were within 1000 miles of accuracy. Oh, wow. So they, I think they came up with a number that was closer to 25,000 miles. We're doing miles. I can't translate this to kilometers. 25,000 miles, and I think the actual thing is like 24 and change. Oh, wow. So, and they they found out, and they had to use a pre-complex mathematical, uh, and uh, they used geography to figure it out. They, they they found a very large plane, and they, I don't know, then used the mathematics to wow. figure it out. So, what are the, some of the biggest names to come out of this, this, this age? I mean, one of the biggest in medicine, and he's... Century later is Avicenna Ibn Sina. Yes, of course. So his 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 medical text, the canon of medicine, was used around the world um, until only recently. I, I I still hear his name. Yeah. Oh, he's hugely important. I mean, he developed a uh, he de developed certain ideas. Uh, and he's not alone. He's just like because a lot of these things we want to say that, like point to this one individual, and it was more groups of doctors that are learning from one another. Um, yeah. He was a philosopher doctor. He died pretty young, actually. Um, but he, you know, he pioneered ideas that would lead to notions of, of, of I'm not going to say a scientific method, because that would be anachronistic to say it then, but, you know, testing certain things. What do we call that? Double blind trials. He didn't yeah. do that, but he was going in that direction um, to see how patients respond to certain medicines and then testing them accordingly um there, there's a lot of, of major wow, people and and they might even be a couple centuries later but they're this is setting the stage for sort of uh knowledge brokerage where people are sort of combining between yeah. different fields and coming up with innovative yeah. ideas but but then after those 300 years that whole like boom kind of went like kind of died down, right? Was it because of political, mil like military campaigns and the focus became more on war? What, so, what happened? Well, all right. So it depends on what aspect you're looking at. So one thing I'm working on is to talk, is to question ideas of sort of intellectual decline. Okay. Um, now you can talk about economic decline. You can talk about political decline. I would say probably politically what's going to happen in the latter part of the Abbasids is that there's political fragmentation within where, the caliph itself. Yeah, whereas once there was this highly centralized, very large Abbasid empire, now you have um, sultanates that emerge in its wake. But Marshall Hodgson says this was an absolutely necessary step for Islam to become a global religion. Okay, that you can't the the highly centralized state has a value in its place in its time, but if Islam's going to become sort of something that accommod can accommodate different historical circumstances, it needs to decentralize, which is what happened. He said this was, I mean, the, the way we're thinking about things today, that we, we might not be talking about it this way. Interesting, if, yeah. If that's that a, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And the wow. caliphate remains, but it becomes uh, very symbolic. But then how about the intelligent? You, you say you're looking at the intelligence aspect, right? Okay, the yeah. intellectual decline. Yeah, intellectual decline, sorry. No, yeah, so sorry, sorry, I'm looking word. at... Um, yeah, I'm looking at educational methodologies, scholarship, 
um, textual forms in the later periods, like 16th, 17th century. Okay. 15th, 16th, 17th, but 15th, 16th, sorry, I should say. Um, and if you actually look at what's going on between the lines of the pages, there's a lot of intellectual discussion. There's a lot of intelligent things being said. Yes. And I think people in my field, previously, not anymore, but previously would be turned off by the outward form of this, that they would see this as derivative. They would see it as a lot of it's coming in the form of commentary texts. And they would see that commentary text as a problem in and of itself. But actually, if you stop and look at the commentary works, there's a lot of very interesting things going on in between the lines. There's a lot of very intelligent people learning a lot of very intelligent things and coming up with new intelligent things to say about them and new ways of framing the world. Well, um, now, anyway, yeah, there's a lot we can talk about. What an interesting time. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm thinking about, uh, let's wrap it up. Sure, yeah. Or was it two hours there? Was that? Yeah, that yeah, passed by in like half a second. Um, if people want to learn more, reach out to you or read anything, where, where can anything, like where, where can they find you? So, so, I mean, I have an academia page that I've been uploading a lot of documents to. I'm trying to publish a book soon. Hope that comes out in the next year. Hope uh, so. Yeah, um, and uh, I'd say I'll try and keep my academia.edu page updated. That's All right, cool. I'll add a link um, sure. to the YouTube channel. I'll make sure that it's out there in case Perfect. anyone wants to reach out or read Thank anything. You. you have a lot of stuff published on there. Where, that's where I read Got some it. of your stuff. Yeah. So yeah. whoever's listening and you guys are into that, check out the academia page. It'll be in the in the link. And that's awesome. That's it? Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you Dr. Ingalls. It, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Hossein. All right, guys. Uh, this was Hanging with Hoos, and I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Take it easy.